This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing that. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Chucky, wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. And your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're On this show, this is your brain on film. We turn our attention to films that warp your minds and melt your faces. We will be discussing the psychedelic themes explored by Alejandro Jodorowsky, Kapar Noe, and David Lynch. We'll also be cranking the party up to 11 by exploring the ruckus party films of Cheech and Chong, Broken Lizard, National Lampoons, and Jay and Silent Bob. Join us for a mind-altering good time. And remember... Don't try this at home. I gotta get construction crews in here by Columbus Day, so you gotta guess for how long? Four really good guys. One week, we're gone. That's fast. I need the job. So the loonies are outside in the real world, and here we are with the keys to the loony bin, boys. <laughs> Might actually want to be grateful, and you're about to make some decent money. What's the catch? Patricia Willard scandal, 1984. I want you to try to remember what happened 24 years ago. Use your imagination. The shrinks figured that with these new techniques they designed, they could release hidden memories. You can hear me. You okay? I want to go home. I wouldn't tell anybody about this. If they find out about Hank, they're going to find out about the others. We have the others. When I come home, I am so sorry. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration. This is your brain on film. And as I always say, we have quite a doozy for you this evening. Or I should say this morning, since we're recording it at like 9 o'clock in the morning. We are going to be doing the 2001 Brad Anderson directed Session 9. And to be quite frank, this movie is one hell of a mind fuck. But that's what we do here. This is your brain on the film. We do mind fucks. And joining me for 
this might sound a little dirtier than I intended it, but I'm going to go ahead and go with it anyway. Joining me for a good old-fashioned mindfuck is my good friend Daniel Goat. How are we doing? Doing pretty good. Yeah, I would say that introduction's a little weird with phrasing, but yeah, I'm happy to be here. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, good morning. As Archer would say, phrasing, phrasing. But uh, yeah, this movie is, uh, it's a genuine mind screw. It's from beginning to end. I hadn't watched it uh, as we were talking, you know, previously uh, before we started recording. I hadn't watched it in four or five years, and it's just... It's, it's a movie that makes you think, you know, a lot of movies are just, you know, popcorn or their mind fodder, but this movie is anything but that it's like the type of movie that once you watch it, you almost need to almost said rewind it, <laughs> but there's no such thing as rewinding anymore, but you need to like start back at the beginning and watch it again to really, I think, capture and understand what you just saw. Um, and I know this is a movie that you hold near and dear to your heart. So, um, you know, what pretty, was your oh, pretty much? Yeah, like the same thing that I said when we were uh, doing the thing. This is one of those movies that I keep on my phone. Like I've had versions of just files of movies on my phone over the last, um, I'd say, five or six years. And I've within that time frame, I've had like three or four phones. And it's like, nope, I have to have the thing with me and I have to have session nine with me all the time. So, yeah, this is definitely one of those movies that I've watched a lot and i don't remember the first time i saw it but it's obviously stuck with me and i've talked about it ever since and loved it i i I definitely see the flaws i don't shy away and i don't ignore some of the things it's like you know that's something that's kind of weird but i really really enjoy this movie through and through uh, me too, me too. And, you know, and to say that any movie is perfect is just, you know, kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's, you know, as we said when we did The Thing, and John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, like, it's about as close to perfect as a movie can get. But, you know, that being said, there are still flaws. But let's go ahead and get off into the quick IMDb synopsis for those of, uh, of you out there that have not seen this film. We will be spoiling the hell out of it. <laughs> But anyway, uh, IMDb synopsis for Session 9 is as follows. Tensions rise within within an asbestos cleaning crew as they work in an abandoned mental hospital with a horrific past that seems to be coming back. And, yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's kind of fair. That doesn't really quite, uh, you know, tell you everything that you need to know. But then again, you know, that's IMDb for you. Well, even like this kind of movie, even if they did go the extra few lines or added another paragraph, it still wouldn't explain the movie. And that's why I like it. There's there's a few different levels. There's obviously an ambiguous feeling and mood that Brian Anderson wanted to do. And yeah, I don't think this is really an easy movie for you to spoil to someone if that was your intention. And that's kind of why I enjoy it. Yeah, It's, it's a lot like... Um his follow-up effort, The Machinist, that Brad Anderson did. They're they're both is equally uh, full of mindfuckery. I mean, that's the only way I can des- describe them. Yeah. You know, I, I did like uh, Trans-Siberian that uh, Anderson also did, but, you know, he went on to do a lot of TV work, do, working 40, 50 credits working on TV, you know, but great director, highly underrated. And, uh, 
I know you said you don't don't remember the first time you see it, but do you remember your first impression of Session Nine? Well, I mean that's that's kind of the thing. Like I hate my memory because like I don't I don't know the exact timing, but like with this being a um, a USA Films movie, like it's not like a movie movie where it was like sent to theaters and like everything like was was a big hoopla. It was it was a TV movie, which is crazy, and like. Around the turn of when this movie was coming out, like I, I did a little bit of more research just because, like, I've talked about this movie in, in other podcasts or at least other like conversations, and I wanted to learn more about like the timing and when the movie came out, and like when we were uh, discussing a few of our previous movies, like I kind of want to go back into that era kind of thing to like remember a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. and. Um, the the camera that was used on this movie, Sony just dropped like the first high definition uh, camera to be digital, like to to like one of those turning points in cinema. And I didn't really know that before that this one was one of the first movies released on both film and digital, like uh, turning that corner around. In technology, and I was like, "Oh, well, that's that's super cool." So it kind of put me in a perspective of like, "Well, when when did I see this?" Because I know I still had one of those huge like projection TVs that weigh more than your oven, probably. Right, and, right. <laughs> uh, I know I watched it on TV, and I, I when I was growing up, I spent my time on like Cartoon Network, TNT, USA. So I'm sure that I had watched this maybe in between some. WCW or WWF wrestling or something, but I I don't know the first time I watched it, but it it definitely it stayed with me at some point. I can't pinpoint the the moment, but I've have seen this movie so many times, and I'm still I still enjoy it. Like I still get um, excited. I still get those weird goosebumps. Like the music cues don't get boring. The the acting still makes me involved, even though like I literally know what they're gonna say. So like it's it's enjoyable no matter you know what mood I'm in. And to think after all this time you still have it on your phone. You see, you've been through like three or four different phones since then, and still like I have to have this movie. Yeah, on I just my phone. I have to. It's, yeah, because it's one of those like uh, I know people have like their creature comforts or like a a song they have to have or like a uh, like a security blanket or something. I don't know if I'd go that far, but like, I just, I'm either always in the mood to listen to music, watch the thing, or watch Session 9, <laughs> or watch Snatch. So, you know, that's, those are my go-tos. Uh, comfort food movies, yep. I love them, I love them. There's just something, you know, you can pop them in and they're familiar, but you're still captivated by them, and this one is definitely one of those films. Uh I think the the introduction to this movie, you know, when they're talking about Danver, Danvers State Hospital, you know, how it closed in 85, some of the patients, you know, keep coming back, you know, and how uh, that was based on some real life incidents at the hospital where they actually had some of the patients camping out. Like, it's just, it says something about that, you know, that place that they were so institutionalized that they just had nowhere else to go and that just as a starting off point as a jumping off point is just 
creepy but yet captivating at the same time. It just kind of, like exactly. I said, gives you those goose pimples all over your body. And it starts right off of, like, giving you hints. Like, you know, all of that kind of um, uh, thought-out exposition that they give, like, it's it's giving you, like, uh, breadcrumbs to follow. And, like, one of, one of the things that I actually really like, and, like, going back to saying that, like, this was a TV movie, like, there's no credits. Like, there's literally two logos, then the movie, and then you're in it. Like, there's no wasting time. If you thought that you could go get a drink and popcorn, you've already, you know, ruined the beginning of the movie. I I love how quickly it just jumps in and you're like, OK, you're there and you're not stopping until we're off this ride. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, I agree. It, it starts off with uh, Peter Milan as Gordon or Gordy, as they call him. You know, you're, you're, you're given, like you said, the, those little breadcrumbs. You know, little taste where they're they're kind of showing you everything, or, or you know, give, giving you those subliminal hints, but not like beating you over the head with it. They're just like, you know, we're going to give you a taste, just a little taste, here and there, a little sip. You know, if you're if you're you're dying of thirst, we're just going to give you a little sip, but we're not going to give you the whole glass, is the way I describe it. And I love the opening. You know what? few minutes in where we get the the voice of Simon doing the hello Gordon it still is like a, a, an like an ice cube running down my spine every oh, yeah. single time the sound design of this movie is just that's actually so sublime that's actually a good thing because I wrote it on my paper like so if anyone's listening to this where you you haven't watched this movie number one you know shame on you but if, if you have <laughs> uh, wear headphones if if you don't have the ability to wear headphones, have some sort of surround sound at least, at least some bass around you because uh, the the music and the sound design and especially the voiceover. There's so much voiceover in this movie because it ties into the the plot. But do yourself a favor, please don't watch this on terrible speakers. Don't watch it from like 20 feet away. You have to really be in there. This is definitely a movie that benefits of you having a good uh auditory uh setup so that's definitely my advice yeah yeah D- please don't just watch it on your laptop you know from halfway across the room you're going to be losing so so much and one thing i want to touch base on here um i wasn't quite sure where to drop this in in the middle of the uh the show but it's something that's been on my mind um have you ever seen the alternative cut that's on dvd that with the bonus subplot and the, the deleted scenes of course i did so see i i have not so i so, wanted to get your your thoughts on that uh, that bonus subplot with the homeless woman i have never seen that footage so yeah so let's basically like kind of um uh do like a tarantino where we talk about the ending and some of the alternate histories and then go back to the <laughs> To the beginning and like talk out the movie. Yeah, so, why not? It's our show. We can do whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> so w- with the history of this movie, there was a um, part of the movie where there was a, one of the homeless uh, people or previous patients. It's never really alluded to. That is in the asylum that our main cast is in while they're trying to clean and uh, renovate some of the asbestos. They're trying to get rid of it because it's um, like a stately um, – a state to you know try and uh, clean it up for the city yeah 
and we they allude to people breaking back into uh, the place, so it kind of fits in. The issue is when they were doing test screenings and they were where they were trying to figure out how the movie worked, what needs to be fixed, criticisms. A lot of people thought that the homeless person or returning patient was Mary Hobbs, which is a character that is crucial to the plot of the movie where uh, one of our main cast listens to their audio tapes of their therapy. And that's basically where we get like the main, I don't want to say antagonist, but the main like entity driving the tension of the movie. Right, right. That's not the case because Brad Anderson was like, no, that's not that's not her. It's just a random person. So they they ultimately decided to cut that those collections of scenes out of the movie. But what's really funny is there's still stuff in the movie that's tied to that character. Um, but they like cut it before or after they're on the screen. So in watching it this time, I was trying to remember. It's been a while since I've actually watched those deleted scenes. Um, I'm trying to remember where exactly they were. And I picked out a few of them, and it's obviously confusing. But I think it actually still works for the movie because the asylum is massive. And they're getting lost in it as is. And it's, you know, you're trying to get sort of like a geography when you watch movies that have a huge a huge environment to play with and it's impossible to like really know like there's some reoccurring rooms in the movie but right right i mean you got like the 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 the, the kitchen you know the Mary, mary's room and whatnot but yeah it gets very confusing at times it's like a labyrinth yeah so i think it works that sometimes it's it, it cuts to a part of the asylum that doesn't really make sense like there's not really a context of why they're showing this on the screen, but this is definitely a movie where like every shot has a purpose. Like they, they have some beautiful cinematography, some very creative angles. It's all chosen for a purpose, but <laughs> they did leave in some things from those deleted scenes. It's kind of weird. Like, especially there's one where it's um when, uh, when Mike gets attacked from behind near the end of the movie yes, that yes. point of view shot of the, the one that's like up to from, him yeah 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 that, that's like that's moving in closely to him yeah yeah that that's supposed to be the homeless woman slash returning patient but it works because you never you never see who that is so if like you weren't told you would never question who that was because eventually what happens in the movie um the only other major thing that happens with those deleted scenes is the homeless woman slash returning patient uh, ultimately kills Gordon. So that was like an alternate ending sort of thing. But I, I don't like that. I don't, I didn't, I don't like that at all. I like how the movie is now wherever you can see it. I think they, I think they chose a good decision to remove all of that. And that is the beauty of test screenings. You can find out what uh, what works and what doesn't. But yeah, okay. I was just wanting to get your. I figured if it, as big of a fan of this movie as you were that you likely had seen those. So I wanted to get your input on them and how uh, necessary you thought they were. But it sounds like you, they did the right thing. They made the right decision. I mean, I'm I'm sure some people 
would like it. You know, I'm only one opinion out of, you know, millions and millions. But, yeah, I think it was good to leave leave that stuff in the editing room. Yeah, my plan was to find those deleted scenes and watch them. I'm sure they're probably available on YouTube. I actually, yeah, I, th- I think mm. they are. But I know, gonna... um, I know the ending might not be viewable. But the some of the deleted scenes where she's like running up the the spiral. Well, it's not really a spiral, but like the 45 degree angle uh, staircase. It's got the the mesh. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like cage-like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cage. That's the word I couldn't think of. Mesh. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but uh, to get to the gist of the story, I mean, this is essentially about, I mean, in the end, I mean, we're like I said, we're spoiling everything here. It's about one man's breakdown. You know, and actually a group of men's breakdown because even, uh, you know, Gordon is our central, you know, I don't know if you want to call him a protagonist, antagonist. He's kind of both. Uh, but Gordon, it's essentially about his slow and steady decline. But even, you know, everybody else, Phil, uh, that David Caruso plays, which I have to say this movie is is just a marvel in the fact that it made me like David Caruso. <laughs> at, least, at least halfway through the movie, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, just as an actor, I've, he's somebody that I've just never quite enjoyed. I always just kind of eh, take him or leave him, you know. Like, no, again, I agree. But it's literally the only movie or thing at all I like him in. <laughs> right, right. And he doesn't wear sunglasses in the entire movie. <laughs> That's that's right, yeah, and he doesn't, you know, there's no uh, The Who playing every time he takes off his sunglasses. But yeah, I, I mean... I just want to point out one thing. I hate to interrupt you, but there's one thing that I want to point out. There's actually not really a main character, which is kind of rare for this movie. Like, obviously we follow Gordon, but we're also, like, following Mike almost the entire movie of his, like, we're listening to the plot through his ears but then, like, we're also following Jeff's nyctophobia or Hank's greed. Like, I think everyone – it's weird that, like, it's it's like an ensemble cast without, like, everyone being, like, an Ocean's Eleven movie. Like, I really enjoy – Right, right. There's not really, like, a a main person until the end of the movie. Well, it, it's the, the 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 gist of the movie isn't really even revealed. You know, it's it, the whole fucking thing. It really is a mystery up until that that final act when everything starts breaking down. I love the fact that it, you know at times, like you said, it follows Mike and his inquisitiveness of finding those tapes. You know, and being a, a law student. You know, and wanting to listen to him. It's funny. You know, these guys. Uh, Gordon makes the the deal with the state. He's like, listen, this is a two week job, but, you know, we'll get you this uh, $10,000 per person bonus. We can get it done in a week. And so everybody's supposed to be working super hard. But if you if you really pay attention, they're taking a real lackadaisical kind of like attitude to it. They're you're always like, we're going to lose our 10000 Yeah, you're breaking it. No. Yeah. Like, it's obvious. Like, no one's really like. Uh, pushing really hard, but that's like the suspension of disbelief. Like, there's no way that they could do anything in a week. But they're just, yeah, lackadaisical is a good word. I mean, they're working, but it's it just it just moves the plot along. But but Mike is always you know 
listening to the tapes and God bless him for doing it because, you know, if he didn't, we wouldn't have a movie. Uh, You also like how, like when they were ending on the days, the sun was still out. Like, it's like they were working half days or something. (laughs) Like (laughs) you got to finish this whole thing in a week. Like maybe work more than eight hours. Yeah. At least be pulling doubles working 16s, you know, but they're, I mean, like Phil's having a beer at the at the bar after after work. He's uh, smoking dope, which I think is funny. There's the whole point. I even made some notes as uh, I was going along, you know, just little tidbits along the way. You know, like, does Phil meet with the thugs or does he? You know, did Gordon really witness him talking to the thugs? Yeah, I think he did. He was buying pot. <laughs> you know? See, see, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there that the it. The unreliable narrator idea and theme comes up a lot just because, like, you don't really – like, immediately when Simon starts talking, you're like, what is that? If you haven't watched this movie before, but, like, there's a lot of confusing contradictions, and then what's going on with – especially, like, after Hank, you know, gets, you know, lobotomized. But, like, there's so many different things. It's like, well, who's really – telling the truth did i did i actually see what's supposed to be happening or was that not real or you know and then even with the ending we'll get into it but like there's a few theories there's a few different things that that could happen and the director doesn't want to ever tell anyone what actually happened and i love that like he's like no i left it ambiguous for a purpose so it's just it's just weird yeah, and I, and I love it for it because you know, in most movie going public, you know the get tre- they get treated most most filmmakers treat the public like they're idiots, and I like the fact that Brad Anderson doesn't treat the audience like they're idiots and like they can't figure things out because you know who is he's he's got kind of the attitude in the interviews that I've watched with him on this, he's got the attitude of like you know I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. You know, and in your assumptions and your your uh, you know whatever you find within the film, what you think happened or what you think is happening, he's like, I'm going to tell you you're wrong. He's just put it out there into the ether and let us decide. You know, because people are genuinely, I hate to almost even say this, genuinely intelligent because some of us are not. But <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's just like the towards the ending when David Caruso is Phil. Uh, you know, after he finds Hank being lobotomized, you, you know, you, you, you know, are led to believe at least for a moment or two that Phil might be the one that's unhinged and Phil might yeah. be the one that that's going crazy. And every time I watch this, I look, I look for something beneath the sur- the surface that tells me otherwise. Well, I mean, like you were just saying, like every, Everything has a has a purpose, and when you were mentioning like him buying pot with the the two people, that absolutely happened because like Phil hides that he's smoking when Gordon pulls up, like every single thing, and it's it's so enjoyable to watch because like everything happens for a reason. Like they don't, no characters' actions just happened because they felt like it. Like every little thing that they were doing was like told to them or scripted or at least kind of like given on the day of but yeah the the two different versions of what happens in mary's room at the end of the movie that you are given like a little bit of time to think and then really 
assess yourself and go, was I not paying attention? Is is it Phil? It has to be Gordon. Or wait, what? So like <laughs> it 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 really it does a really good job of like heavy handedly putting the direction onto Gordon because of everything that's going on. Obviously he does have more screen time than everyone else, or at least has some of the more emotional acting. And I just got to say the scene with him and Jeff sitting on that tree trunk up above Mary Hobbs's broken tombstone after he's his pretend call with Wendy dude, that's just some like awesome acting. And like Pete, Peter's a natural accent, which I think he's Scottish. Um, is, I believe so. Yeah, dude, it's <laughs> it's so good when he's just like, you know, she's just tired. Like it's so good. So I think yeah. everything was was for a reason. There was a lot of very specific choices in this movie that it helps confuse you, but also kind of like cradles you, knowing that. You're shown stuff for a reason. Like it's not just wasted frames, and that's I, th- I think that's why I love the movie so much. Well, everything is deliberate. There's nothing that's like, oh, that was a happy accident. Glad that happened. No, it was everything was meticulous. It was just like you said there in the scene where he's sitting on the tree trunk and it pans down and it, it the, the tombstone's got number four 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 on it, which the number four 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 is Mary Hobbs's patient number. You know, and it pops up so often. You know, it pops up on the the door leading to her room, where you got the collage of all the pictures on her wall on the wall. But the thing I, I don't know that maybe this was just me, and this is something that I made a note of on this particular viewing. And maybe you'll maybe you'll agree with me on this or disagree. But I thought that this time around, that the the tapes that Mike is listening to with the doctor talking to Mary Hobbs. I started to think that the doctor sounded like David Caruso. And I didn't know if that was deliberate, you know, the cadence to the voice and the way he talked at times, I thought it sounded like Caruso's character, Phil. And I'm not sure if you picked up on that, or maybe that was, maybe that's just me. I think that may just be you reaching. It's, it's a neat, it's a neat idea, but no, I've never heard of that kind of like, crossover or at least like limit in the cast where like he did do it but like maybe tried to like not sound like him but i don't but that's like the movie makes you want to try and figure out those gaps like um like when were the tapes recorded because it kind of gives you a time frame but kind of not um and but no i i like the the many many theories or the different things. There's one that I still hold on to that's like a like a wishful thinking theory, but I'll talk about that near the end of our our conversation, near the end of the, end of the movie. Gotcha, gotcha. Like I said, I figured that was just me because it was something that you know I've seen this movie multiple times. It was just something that I picked up on this past past uh, viewing. The one thing I like I didn't quite understand, and maybe you got a theory on this or thoughts on it, is the cachet of uh, coins and the, the 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 bounty that that Hank finds. I, I didn't understand like what that was supposed to represent. Like if that was just uh, 
somebody had cached them there, you know, I mean, it had put them there to be found, you know, to come back and get later. But like the, you know, there was jewels, there was rings, there was eyeballs. Or was it just like, yeah, you know? like, like with a crematorium, like there's the, obviously we're just like laying out the foundation of this scene. If you haven't seen it, or if you have your memory jogged, uh, there's a, a cache of what you just said, coins, glasses, eyeballs, uh, different things that are from a crematorium that's right next to the morgue. And it's kind of weird of how they're placed there because if the place was decommissioned and they were trying to get rid of everything, the stuff still had twine on it. It still had some of those satchels, the um, the paper descriptors, kind of like a toe tag for some of these things. Right, right. Like none of that really sort of makes sense. And I really think that's one of the only things in this movie that I just let go that practically it's weird that it would be there. And it's not like it's hidden in the wall. When Hank takes out that brick, it leads directly to the bottom of the crematorium. So, like, it's not like it was put in there like a treasure chest and put into a random wall. So I don't, I don't really know, but it, I, I'm still happy that it serves the purpose of like having him be one of the first people to be a victim, and it's just a happenstance coincidence. There's a few things that I've read over the years that um, Gordon has been just because he stays there, obviously. Uh, you know, spoiler. Yeah, he, he is not staying at the hotel, like he says. He, he is not at the hotel. But there's there's a few people that, that I've read online uh, through Reddit or Twitter or 4chan, whatever, um, that was like Gordon put that there because obviously there's there's kind of like a – Ooh, piece of candy moment where the coins go to it, like it leads to that area. Yeah, like it's so like breadcrumbs, you know. Yeah, like is that really a coincidence that they were just laid out there by accident over the last however many years that the place has been decommissioned? I, I don't know, um, but. Yeah, I don't know. It's just weird. And then, yeah, just speaking of decommissioned, like it's sad that Danvers isn't there anymore. Like there's a wing that's still there, but basically this hospital was a real place and it was decommissioned and destroyed in 2007, which is very sad. But it's a magnificent building. And it's it's it's, it's not sad that these places were decommissioned because there was a lot of horrible things that went on in these places. But it's sad that the buildings are are, that the structures themselves just being beautiful examples of architecture is just sad that they've all just kind of rotted away to, you know. Exactly. But that being said, I think this movie can be summed up by saying it, as I said earlier, it is about one man's slow and steady decline. And everything about Gordon or Gordy, as they like to call him, you know, it's spelled out for you right in the beginning. You know, it's like when he's sitting outside his house, he's looking in at his wife in the doorway with, you know, looking at Wendy with Emma, his daughter. He's like, oh, roses, how lovely. What's the okay? What's the occasion? And then it ends with the, the first time you see it, it ends with a scream and then it just cuts. 
So you're led to, you know, you're led to believe that things are not so well with him as you would would like to believe. But they don't tell you, you know, what happened. They never, you know, they never quite show you. They, 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 like I said before, they just give you little sips. They give yeah. you this little taste. The only real like, and it's it's when you pay attention. I, again, this is why I love this movie so much. Like when the first time he sees Wendy and Emma after the closing of the deal, and he's got he's got the roses, he's got you know the bag with the peanut butter, and he's going in the house. Like it's sunny, it's clear, she's smiling, everything's good. But then the next time we see that house, it's pouring down rain. All of the windows are are, are blinded shut, and it's just like so moody. And he's just got his, his forehead up against his window. Like it's so simple, but like it translates extremely well to like not explicitly tell you but it's like well we're giving you all these context clues we're gonna finish the sentence later but you know we're we're getting there it's just so enjoyable now uh this is something that i didn't pick up on until i was doing a deep dive into wikipedia a few things on reddit and whatnot uh did you know that um the connections between this and the very subtle connections between this and the shining where the bag that he has <laughs> apparently like I have to go back and watch the shining to, to confirm this, but apparently when he's got the bag with the, the kind of, it's got the peanut butter and he's got the, the roses and it's got a bag of Oreos that the Oreos and the peanut butter was a deliberate set piece, uh, set up there because when, uh, Jack Nicholson is Torrance and the shining wakes up in the, uh, in the kitchen, he is sitting next to big jars of peanut butter and bags of Oreos. Yeah. And of course, both of their, the main characters wives are named Wendy. Yeah. Like, I think, I, never I think that's the on. only, I think that's the only two major things. I think there's one more that I can't think of right now, but yeah, he definitely had some, um, I don't want to say inspiration, but he wanted to nod the shining. And I, I think that the, uh, mental instability that gordon has mirrors jack a little bit but yeah i think it's cool i I like it when directors and and filmmakers do that oh do you do you now i didn't realize that (laughs) (laughs) inside joke there folks you'll have to tune in to a later time to get that one (laughs) uh i think you know the way this movie builds you know like you said, the, the movie really has no main character. I mean, David Caruso probably does get m- more of the, the screen time, even more so than uh, Peter Milan is, is uh, Gordon. But everybody is given their own equal time. You know, you got Hank going back, you know, well, until he gets uh, lobotomized, <laughs> going back for, his, you know, his goodies. But, you know, you get an equal amount of time with uh, the Jeff character, Brandon Sexton. You know, in t- talking about uh, his, you know, phobia of the dark, you got, you know, Stephen. Uh, I forgot his last name. I forgot the actor's name that plays Mike. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. It looks like Gevedon, or it just could just be Gevedon, but we'll just say it's Stephen. So yeah. yeah, the Stephen is Mike. Really, without him, you know, we have no. 
I wouldn't say structure, but his discovery of the of the sessions of the you know the sessions one through nine of the tapes is is our skeleton of the story that to which we build the meat and you know and the meat and potatoes around the bones so to speak you know and as he's listening to these tapes in the reveal of simon and i kind of i i believe simon is like the simon character the 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 voiceover you know that would always say hello gordon do it gordon you know every time i hear that voice and that's where i think uh, your your point of having to wear headphones or having a really good surround sound system or a good sound bar at least is is 100 percent integral to enjoying this movie to its fullest potential because that sound design with his voice on those tapes yeah it's so good and yeah. like correct me if i'm wrong anyone who wants to comment or email or whatever i i think that simon's voice was um at least two people and it was kind of like merged together or it was like a chorus with like a like uh, some sort of like effect put on it but it's it's so good it's just so simple like it doesn't have to be so extravagant of a of a thing to be creepy but like that voice is awesome and like especially like with um disassociative identity disorder and like that kind of thing that's already sort of unknown and just the creepiness and like because there, there's basically two plots well i would say three there's three plots going on like you have what happened to mary hobbs and her telling the story to her therapist and then we have our our uh asbestos crew and what they're doing in the hospital and then we have what happened to gordon and trying to figure out what's going on there so like you got this trifecta of confusion all running together but it works like it i mean i i've never felt lost watching this movie i, I don't know if if there are certain people like oh well i got confused and i couldn't finish the movie but it it just works it works so well i mean to me i mean uh, maybe this is not the point to 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 say this but you know i don't uh, it's on my mind now so i'll say it i think what this movie could be summed up as is that Simon is a part of all of us, you know, is this not just a part of Mary Hobbs? It's not just a part of Gordon. It's something that's within all of us, you know, it's like that underlying voice in the back of your head that just says, you know, go ahead, do the thing. Yeah. Well, this movie like makes me think a lot of uh, Amityville because it's got kind of that same unknown. I hear voice there's different things going on and like you know this movie would still have happened like let's say in in the universe of what's going on like gordon would still have went through everything that he's going through if mike never had found those tapes but like just because he found the tapes we kind of got like a uh, an insider knowledge per se of what's going on but like imagine you know what's going on if we didn't have the mary hobbs tapes to like know what's going on yeah they're they're there as a plot device you know what i mean uh, to, to help the audience along essentially uh, gosh there's so much i feel like we could do like a triplicate of, of shows <laughs> <We probably laughs> on, on this movie it's just kind of like when we did the the show on the thing 
you know, it's just like we there, once we're done, we're going to be like, yeah, there was 27 other things that I wanted to talk about, but there's only so much we can touch base on in an hour, two hour show. <laughs> but uh, one thing I wanted to touch base on was the fact that G- Gordon's always talking on the phone and he's apparently, you know, and I'm doing air quotes here, talking to Wendy, asking for her forgiveness, always saying, Wendy, can you forgive me? I want to come back home. And he, you know, in the end, we know why he can't go back home. We won't quite say what yet, but he can't go back home. There's no way he can go back home. Oh, well, we've already spoiled some of the movie. You might as well go ahead and say, you know, you started the the episode with we're spoiling the shit out of this. So, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, you know, he he killed his wife and daughter, (laughs) you know, he didn't over some pasta. Over some pasta, over some, yeah, I mean, like, that, that's the thing, that was the catalyst, you know, he comes home, you know, and again, you hear it, you never quite see it, you know, you see the aftermath where he's got the burns on his leg, you know, but you, you know, he comes home, he's got roses, he's got Oreos and peanut butter, he's coming home, he's, you know, celebrating because he's got the job that's going to save the company because his company's about to go under because they got a newborn and it's too much stress and he's just stressed out and she you know she burns him with some pasta and some pasta water and he goes on to kill crazy rampage killing his his wife and infant daughter and i think they did right with this kind of movie it's not a uh you know gore has its place in films you know, Gore has its place in, in certain films, but this is not, you know, that type of movie. That's what yeah. I was just going to say. With with this being a TV movie, it benefits. I think the movie would not be so good if it showed all of the violence because we don't see anyone being murdered except um, – what's his face <laughs> at, the, at the end of the movie? Oh, McMan- oh. McManus. Yeah, and and everything is always an aftermath. I I love that so much. Like obviously, no one wants to see, uh, you know, a wife and a a infant get murdered. But like, there's movies that do that. (laughs) Like, there's there's obviously movies that would show every bit of what Gordon did. But because it didn't, I I love the uh, uh, insinuation. Of certain things, and then obviously we see the aftermath. Like we see the bodies at the end of the movie, but we've been taken on a ride so many other times, and kind of like not lied to, but we still don't know what's going on. Like you know, it's being shown to us, but like, are we really seeing what's going on? So, yeah, it's it's just like Phil with the you know with the thugs that he meets up. You know, he says like, "Oh yeah, I ran those guys off. They were uh, graffiti artists. You know, we, I ran them off. They won't be coming back no more." No, nah, you know, we we can essentially say that he was just buying pot off of them. You know, but was you know Gordon seeing what he saw or wasn't he? You know, so it's always kind of there's always something going on. You're always being. Uh, not like you said, not necessarily lied to, but maybe momentarily misled. Well, him as the character himself, because like after he has that argument with Phil on the uh, the rooftop and like he goes and sits at the staircase by himself, like he can't even remember why his fingers are bloodied. Like he he's like, oh, yeah, like, like why he's got the blood under his fingernails yeah so like we're watching 
him piece together these things and he's breaking down as is because he doesn't know what's going on but like like obviously he cut himself at the beginning of the movie and that's visible in that scene but like all this other blood we know that it sh- it should be hank's blood because like that you know that would the eluding of like the peanut butter jar in the the hallway and all this other stuff but like we're watching him be confused as well and it just adds to like this ever-growing roller coaster that's just getting like taller and taller into the sky well and the scene that follows that you know when they're in the the i don't know you know what you would want to call it the cleanup station where they they you know they take a shower to make sure they're not like bringing into that nasty asbestos stuff you know home with them and and phil says to him hey you need to get clean up get all that shit off of you and that's when I believe that's the scene where he finally reveals to Phil and to us as the audience that he hit Wendy, if I'm correct. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's and a, you that's think that's his turning. biggest transgression. You think that's his biggest transgression. <laughs> like I, I wrote down like right after that scene, like Phil as a character turns 180. Cause, cause that's where I feel like it's at the entire movie, like Phil's behind him. He's trying so hard to like protect gordon but then he finds out that gordon hit his wife and now he's like wanting to undermine him kick him out question him like he doesn't want to help him anymore and it's like man what a confusing like flip on like your coworker and friend who needs you like is visibly shaking and sad and like not like and that's when you're like oh yeah it's david caruso like he's a dick yeah, <laughs> so, it's really rough, but like it's there's so many things that happen in quick succession at the end of the movie. That's after that. I feel like when he reveals that he hit her, that it kind of like opened a door of like he he admits that something happened, and then it's like the ending of that roller coaster. It's it's going down and it can't be stopped. And like right after that. There's so many things that happen in just a quick order that it's just crazy. Well, uh, one of the scenes that follows that is when um, Phil's confiding in Mike. Like, listen, you know, Gordon's losing it. We need to we need to get him out of here. We need to get him off the job. He hit his wife, and Gordon overhears it. And there's that tense moment when they're the three of them, you know, Gordon, Phil, and Mike are all standing there in silence. Like, oh, you know, what were you talking about? Oh, we're just uh. Talking about Jeff, which we've never quite mentioned yet, uh, the young Jeff is Gordon's nephew. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, he's kind of young, but he's a punk. He's a little lazy. But, you know, we feel like he's doing really good. We were just talking about that. And it's like obvious. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's painfully obvious, even I think to, to probably Gordon at the time, as confused as he is, that they're lying to him. They're, you know, that Phil is kind of, you know working working his magic so to speak because he doesn't trust in him anyway or he's so far away from the situation that he can't even like comprehend betrayal he's just so confused all the time and i just want to point out i think like i don't know uh what peter uh, peter mullen's career choices were i think it's crazy that he never got another like big role 
or well, not. I mean, this wasn't a big role. Like this movie was technically a failure. Like it it didn't make any money back that you know what it was put in. It's you know it's a success now because of like cult classic status. But like his, I, I just don't understand where he went or what he chose. Like his acting skills in this movie are ridiculous, and he I've just never seen him in anything else that was like major. I don't know. Sorry, that's just an aside. I wanted the to only thing that up. I really recognized him from was he was in um, a couple seasons of Westworld. Uh, I don't think he was in the third season, but he was in the first and second season. Uh, but yeah, he was in Westworld. I, I know he's supposed to be in the new Lord of the Ring series that's coming out on Amazon. I have no idea what role he's playing. But yeah, I mean, I I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> I just remember seeing his name his name being mentioned for that new Lord of the Rings, uh, which you know who knows what that's going to be like. But they got some big uh, big shoes to <laughs> big shoes to fill with that one. But uh, I think you know when the moment things really, I mean, there's so many moments where things take a weird turn in this. But when Jeff sees Hank. You know, and it's so dreamlike. You you know, you question, at least I did, you know, the first time I watched it, whether or not he really saw Hank. And Hank is just standing there, just kind of dreamily looking at him with his sunglasses on. It's like, what are you doing here? Just saying it over and over again. What are you doing here? But when it's finally revealed, you know, because uh, Gordon used that, I forgot the name of the tool. I wish I had written it down, but that spike that they used to do the lobotomies is still shoved into his brain through his eye socket. The only reason why he can't see it is because he's wearing those, you know, those fucking aviator shades. And, you know, when it's revealed later on, you know, when uh, David Caruso, you know, comes up and there's that, that kind of flip flop, you know, where you think David Caruso maybe killed Hank and that David Caruso is going to kill Gordon. But then when it's revealed, it's like, you know, Hey, I found Hank. He said, you heard him. Is that true? Gordon? Yeah. (sighs) And And it's, it's those deliveries. Like it's the choices of those, the whatever, how many takes that they did of it's so, um, cause obviously that version because there's two different versions of the Mary Hobbs room confrontation between Phil and, uh, and Gordon. But like when David Crusoe is like, he told me you heard him. Is that true? Like his eyes, his like furrowed red eyebrows are just make you feel it. To me, it just was like, so invested. Like you're already, if you're already at that point in the movie, you're like, either I want to end this cause I don't like it. Or you're, on the edge of your seat like please tell me what happened like i'm not gonna right. but um it it throws you off too because with phil and hank's relationship um you know they have kind of a love triangle thing drama between uh a, a woman between the two of them same character yeah yeah but it, it's like they hate each other but then at the same time in the movie you you see that Phil gets him his lottery tickets. He still does stuff for him. There, there, you know, there, there's moments in the movie that show that they still work together quite nicely. But then also, you know, they have this kind of like hatred for each other. But yeah, it makes you think: 
is Phil doing something? And then basically after that Mary Hobbs room, every other instance of Phil is not real. I mean, he's, yeah. he's dead. So like he's just another voice inside Gordon's head. But we don't know that until oh, really? – Later well, until after. McManus shows up, the the guy they actually hired to replace the the missing Hank. Yeah, you know, and when McManus shows up, he shows up while, you know, Gordon is screaming back and forth or yelling back and forth with Phil, and then he is this revealed there's nobody there, but Hank is there. Hank is there laying wrapped in plastic on the ground, and it's it's almost comical when. I mean, there's really not much in this movie that's comical, but I, I found myself giggling because I'm a sick fuck. Uh, when they pull off the sunglasses and you realize that Hank is still, A, very much alive. He's not dead, but he's got that spike driven in through his, his eye socket. And you know that thing is burrowed deep into his brain, and it's just like, oh. And like, and that's why he's like, why, you know, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Because he was just caught in that perpetual loop of his last thought, his last words, you know, when he saw Gordon coming up there. And I did read that they had a, a little subliminal thing that the jar of peanut butter that Gordon had that he was bringing home to his wife was laying on the ground uh, not far away from where uh, Hank was yeah. digging for the coins. Yeah, he's basically just been eating peanut butter and Oreos for the last few days in the <laughs> hospital. That's why he's so insane. That's the, his diet. That's his diet, yeah, you know, dipping Oreos and peanut butter. I mean, like, you know, not a not a bad snack, but you know. <laughs> and it's just so crazy too, because just thinking of that, like, we mentioned it before. Like, yeah, he he says that he's staying at a hotel, but that's kind of misleading to both the audience and his his coworkers. But like, he doesn't have anywhere to go. He's broke, so he's staying at the asylum. But that's just making him more insane. And it's such a neat thing because when we – the more the movie goes on, like Gordon is pulling into the parking lot. So it's like he's – his subconscious self that is the Simon is protecting the other part of him where it's like having him leave the asylum before anyone else comes up there. Like it's weird because it's like the movie's doing that for us to like protect – the ending to like showcase that you know he's not there all the time but it's a conscious thing that i think of all the time now especially like the ending where he pulls his you know instantly recognizable red van to phil and just stares at him just literally stares a hole through his head when he's trying to you know just it's like yep i'm gonna i'm gonna get, go ahead and go in and it's like he could have been parked there the entire time Every day, like he doesn't have to leave, but it's those little details of like what's really going on in the background when you start remembering all the things that happened after the ending of the movie. Yeah, because you essentially can't trust anything that is seen through at least uh, at least through Gordon's eyes, because, you know, it, it, is it truth? Yeah, maybe to him, but like. In reality, and to us, no, it's, it's just, yeah, it's just not. It, uh, it's a movie that bears multiple viewings. You, you can't possibly, like, at least for me, I couldn't possibly absorb everything the first time I watched this. 
I immediately wanted to watch it again and be like, wait a minute, what did I what did I really see? We're starting exactly. this fucker back over again and watching yeah. it again. And and, and I and this is a weird segue. I, I gotta mention one of my like the part where my heart goes out to a character the the, the most. I mean, because everybody in this movie is essentially a, a victim. Even Gordon, he's a victim of his own psychosis. But poor Jeff. You know, having that fear of the dark, and once he realizes the gener- generators are going down, and he's in that underground tunnel, he's already didn't want to go down there. They well yeah. established that he has the phobia of the dark, and as the lights start going out, and the way he screams, Brandon Sexton, it's I, I don't know him from anything else, but I felt his fear like genuine and palpable. Well, that's that's why I was wanting to say like there's not really a main character. There is, but. Everyone's got like their own uh, chance to like show off, and yeah, you feel even Hank, even asshole Hank. There's a moment where like you're happy for him, even though he's creepy and like stealing some of the coins and uh, and all of this stuff to like make it big. But he describes. Well, well, well and I got to interject for two seconds. Inter- sorry to interrupt, but like he even finds the glass eyes, and he's like, "Oh, these might be worth something." He's taking some poor corpses. <laughs> Class eyes and like, yeah, I'm gonna pawn him. I get that, but like, like I was saying, like uh, at the um, when he's describing Jeff, like his exit strategy, like obviously being an asbestos, you're going to die of cancer sooner or later. So like anyone who can get out, kudos to them. But like, yeah, everyone has their moment to shine, or at least feel sorry for them. And Jeff is a is a big one. Like you really, he did not have a good weekend. No. Uh, the the moment like when it's all revealed at the end that it's it is you know Gordon that's been you know it's at the center of all this, and you know he's just like hey man I'm sorry I had to get out of there and he's like I, I found your keys I'm sorry I ran off and like that moment before you know Gordon takes him out, it's just. You're just like, oh, listen, kid, this, this ain't your uncle anymore. Run. Don't walk. Run away from yeah. this son of a bitch. And he even went for a hug. Like, you know, you feel real rough. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going to hug the, hug my, my, my uncle because I'm so, so thankful I'm not in the dark anymore. <laughs> you know, he's going he's gonna to wish. He's going to wish he was still down in that dark tunnel. Though it's pretty rough. And one thing, just looking at the IMDb, just you know, trying to refresh my memory of other stuff. I hate that, like I missed this at the beginning when we were like introducing the movie. Uh, Steven, the person we can't pronounce their last name correctly, uh, who plays Mike, he wrote the movie as well with Brad Anderson. So I just at least wanted to throw that out there. Of it's a really cool thing that you know there was a lot of investment of everyone in the cast for this movie so i just wanted to throw that out there yeah i did not know that he he had uh, co-wrote it i didn't and now that i'm looking at it that was his only writing credit that is quite a shame quite a shame that that was the only thing he ever wrote wrote oh god that's just such talent right there man that's a sacrilege that it was the only thing the man ever wrote well, the other thing is, I don't want to throw any shade, but we don't know how much he wrote into the movie. Could have been like a writing credit for like a few lines of added dialogue he wanted to add. So I, who knows? Could have could have been ninety percent Brad, ten percent Stephen. Could have been ninety percent Stephen, ten percent Brad. Who knows? 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. You don't know. Maybe, maybe he just wrote the Mike character. Who, who knows? <laughs> One thing I wanted to touch base on was the picture collage in Mary's old room. Yeah. You know, where they're, they're discussing the picture collage as a mode of uh, therapy back in the, the, the 70s and the 80s before this place was shut down. You know, all the pictures of Mary and her family and different things that are on the wall. As it's slowly revealed, you know, as Gordon is staring at these pictures on the, the wall as he's having this kind of moment of re- revelation, as you start seeing the pic, you know, it's going from pictures of Mary and Mary's family to all of a sudden you just see the picture of Emma, you know, with the drip of blood on it. And then you start, it's just kind of, the camera doesn't pull back, but I mean, the scene kind of pulls back. And you just start seeing the collage of the pictures and start realizing that Gordon is is essentially, you know, he 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 is he is Simon. He has become Simon. At least that's how I, I, I take it. That he has become Mary, become Simon, so to speak. And that that's where I came up. At least this one my theory is is that you know, Simon, the Simon character, the the voice in the back of your head that tells you to do these, you know awful things it's like you know with the one point where the simon voiceover just says do it gordon you know which i can't <laughs> i can't mimic that voice and i i feel ashamed even trying to to attempt it <laughs> but it's pretty good yeah it, it's about as good as you can do <laughs> but no that that throws into like some of the theories to the end of the movie like so obviously he was either staying in mary's room or he just was in there quite a lot to bring his own keepsakes and try and mimic the therapy and just, you know, stick his own photos to the wall in just a, in a, in a weird way of, again, just, you know, trying to come to terms with what he did. And it's like when he, when he got into there, into the hospital, did Simon latch onto him then? Or one of the other theories is, he was a previous patient, and he got his life together. Everything was fine. He opened up his own, uh, you know, construction business or uh, the fabric business or like, what do they call it? Oh, fiber, uh, fiber, 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 yeah, fiber business. And you know, got his life together, and then as soon as he was back in the in the hospital, everything came back, and it was like, nope, he he never left. So I kind of like that theory, but we don't <laughs> we don't know because yeah, we, you know, we're we're not going to be told. Yeah. So but, so that, is that your theory? Is that he was was a former patient that had gotten his life together and somehow made well, his way back to Danvers? There's there's two that I like. So that one is more plausible that he could have been a previous patient for however many years and I then got like his that life theory. together. And just I like that forgot. theory a lot. You know, he just, you know, he he blocked it out. And there's been a few movies that have kind of done that, but like it all Shutter those repressed... Island comes to mind. Exactly. <laughs> so that repressed memory comes up, and Simon never left. He was just kind of silenced for a while. I like that one because it it fills in the gaps. It's nice and clean. Good theory. The more the more laughable one, which is kind of cool. But again, you can make up your own head cannon because we don't really have an explanation. Is 
and stay with me here. Uh, maybe you've heard this one, maybe not. Okay, I'm but with you. I'm with you to the bitter end. The only character that's real is Gordon. When he is in the asylum, he's one of the patients that were there that went homeless but has remained insane. And he goes back to the hospital to just be a um, – uh, what's it called? Uh, just someone who lives there. I can't yeah. remember. A squatter. Squatter, yeah. So the different characters are either people he's previously known or different parts of his personality. So, like, Mike is the professional person that he could have been, the smart, intelligent, thought-out person. Hank is a uh, is a personification of his greed and his uh, selfishness. Jeff is his younger self, the innocence that he can't get back anymore. Um, and I, I can't remember the how it was written about Phil, but it was like the the take charge person that he should be, like the person who's dedicated that will always like push forward. Yeah, the kind of the sort of alpha male type. Yeah. And the theory revolves around him killing parts of his personality in in the asylum. And I don't know. I can't remember a lot of the details. I read it a few years ago, and I was like, this is batshit crazy, but it's cool. Like, it, it, it's so out there that it's kind of neat, but that's a really weird theory. It's a long so, shot. I yeah. like it, though. I like it, though. But I I like the first one that I mentioned. He, you know, he comes back and then all those repressed memories are, you know, up there. And he, he you know, Wendy did happen. Emma did happen. And that's kind of like the catalyst too of like, you know, he used to be used to be a crazy guy. Um, and he held but, it yeah. together for all these years, but now it's just it took a pot of hot boiling pasta to trigger him back. <laughs> And yeah, and ever since this movie and basically Adam's family, I can't think of the word Gordon. Every time I hear that name, it's either this movie or that. So, <laughs> oh, no, I think my favorite—I uh, have to say—my favorite part is is the very end where he's on the broken phone that's smashed up and it's it practically in pieces in his hand, and he's like, you know, he's begging, you know, he's like, I, I want to. I, I want to come home, you know, can you forgive me? Just begging and pleading as we see, you know, that again, that the phone is broken and it just kind of ends that at that point, you know, and I love a little bit of the bits at the end dialogue, you know, like with on the tape with the doctor, you know, why do you do that, Simon? Because Mary let me, they always do. And the best line of the movie, at least is, in my opinion, and this is where I'll end off my spiel, it's like I live in the weak and the wounded, Doc, and then boom, it just kind of, it just ends. And I love that that revelation where he's just where the Doc, you know, where Simon is just. I live in the weak and the wounded, Doc. It's so, just. <clears throat> uh, it's it's really good. I sink my teeth into. What's funny? And this is completely. This is it wasn't planned. We didn't talk about any most of this before recording. So you you say your favorite scene is basically the ending, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. My, that, that that last like thirty seconds. So my favorite scene is actually the opening shot. 
so we're we're bookending this movie like the the upside down <laughs> hallway with the chair, which is obviously the you know part of the poster. But uh, there was an interview that I remember Brad did where he talked about opening the movie where it's very weird to have that upside down um, confusing like you're 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 shifting the world on its axis. And he, I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me. But he was basically like, we start the movie out upside down. It's already out of order. It's chaos. But then it turns, and it does that clockwork kind of turn to be right side up. And we start the movie shifting gears into how you're supposed to look at that that hallway, which is the outside of Mary Hobbs's room. And he's like, take it for what you will, but that shot was done on purpose. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means, but I love that. It's just, you know, that's literally the, the, the whole antithesis of the, the movie in both sort of making sense and not at the same time. So I, I think it's cool that we both, we like the beginning and the end of our you know, <laughs> favorite spots. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, our, our both our favorite parts uh, bookend the movie kind of perfectly, you know. But yeah, like I said, there there is no such thing as, I, and I've said this many times on the show before. There's no such thing as a perfect movie, but damn it, this is much like the thing. It's about as perfect as it gets, or at least it's not as perfect as it gets, but damn it, it's about as good as it gets. But that being said, I think we get summed up this movie. Uh, <laughs> as much as we can in one show uh, would you like to give your final thoughts and a rating on a scale from one to ten well you know i would say almost it's a 20-year uh reunion of this movie because it came out in 2001 if you if you haven't watched it just please try and find it i know you found it on uh voodoo Right? Is that where you yeah, watched it? I found it on Vudu. It's also available on Prime and a couple other. You can rent it for like three ninety nine. I think it's it's worth the money. That's literally uh, a Big Mac meal in some states. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's the cost of one of your NOS energy drinks. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So just do yourself a favor and watch this movie. I mean, it's and again, don't be afraid of like it being a gore fest. It's it's not like it's this is absolutely a uh, mental horror movie, a, a psychological thriller, and it's not like nightmare fuel. Like there's not a lot of stuff in here other than maybe a few scenes that like are visually um, just scary, but it's the the ambience. It's the 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 building in itself. I mean, Danvers is a creepy building. As is, I mean, they barely had to do anything to it to make it look as is. It's you know, you, you're watching how it actually looks, but you just you gotta watch this movie. Even if you're not really into horror movies, it's just a awesome story and a plot. And again, the editing, how they managed to have all three stories, it it's just really successful. Uh, it's a ten out of ten for me. I've had it rated as a ten out of ten for my entire life of watching it so and it it's it pisses me off that like on imdb it's a 6.4 right now i'm like really like <laughs> there's 
awful movies that are rated higher than this just because people i don't know i i love this movie through and through yeah well and in a world where you know uh, the fast and the furious are getting nines and tens out of ten you know <laughs> and this movie has a 6.4 that's a travesty in and of itself um i'm going to echo a lot of the things you just said this movie is all about atmosphere the Danvers, the, the the metal hospital is it's it's a character in and of itself. It's a living, breathing character essentially. And you know, I, I did read in, in some of the information I was uh, studying up on. They did very little to uh, you know dress the place up. They just kind of went in and just like, wow, this place has got you know a <laughs> million dollars worth of uh, production value in and of itself already. I mean, they added some some meat hooks hanging from the ceiling in the the kitchen, some uh, you know some uh, plastic gloves and things like that hanging in the one the the one hallway and things like that. They added a few props and stuff, but essentially, they they worked with what they had and the location itself. It's it's just all about atmosphere. It's about atmosphere, a lot of misdirection, and you know, uh, and again, you know. The, the tagline for this movie says it all. Fear is a place, and it's about fear, and it's about Danvers. But it's, yeah, and I agree, it's not a gore fest. It doesn't play upon big action set pieces or big special effects sequences with a lot of heavy gore. Yeah, there's a time and a place for that in movies, and this was not the time or place within this movie. It's all about. It's about atmosphere and a shit ton of good writing, editing, and, and acting. It's really, it's it's about as good as it gets. And I'm going to echo your 10 out of 10. It, it's To give it anything less than a 10 is, uh, you know, a, a fucking sacrilege. It's, a, it's a, an amazing movie. And the fact that, like, you know, like he followed this up with The Machinist, which is another great movie. And maybe we'll cover it here one day. Uh, yeah, yeah, Brad Anderson. He is the MVP right here in this in this movie. Usually, I pick an actor to be the MVP uh, of the movies that we review and watch, but yeah, Brad Anderson, MVP. But that being said, um, I want to thank you. I know it took us a while to to get get down and get get together to uh, be able to review this one, but um, I've appreciated it. Um, I always appreciate when we get together and talk movies. We usually, at least for the most part, see eye to eye on these things. No, the appreciation has to come from me because you've been able to give me both The Thing and Session 9, which are two of my favorite movies. So uh, we can do three for three and we can do Event Horizon in the future, you know, just, you know, whatever. Ooh. But no, you've, you've I been love able Event to, Horizon. <laughs> you've been able to let uh, us talk on air about some of my favorite movies. So I'm 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 very uh, appreciative. So are you saying that Halloween Resurrection is one of your favorite movies? <laughs> no. <laughs> No. Although that was one of my favorite episodes to record, I, mu I must say, just just uh, I had a lot of fun recording that one. I will agree with that. That was it was fun to trash <laughs> on that movie and uh, come come together with um, uh, pitchforks in hand to uh, <laughs> raise that. Pitchforks and torches, right? And like we're hunting down Frankenstein's monster. Oh, Halloween Resurrection! I'm looking at you. But that being said. Well, folks, I want to thank you all out there in uh, podcast land for listening to us here at Cinema Degenerations. You've been listening to us uh, wax philosophical on session nine here on This Is Your Brain on Film. As, as always, thanks for listening. 
And where do you live, Simon? I live in the weak and the wounded. Dog. 